the word of the Lord for today is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now take some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet had tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guest had had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let us pray for uh, David this morning. Dear God, we are thankful for you um, this morning when we listen to your word. Um, Lord, may you, may you empower David when he speaks. Lord, when he preach your word, Lord, I pray that may your word shape us, mold us, let us be more like you. Help us to know your heart and draw closer to you. Holy Spirit, I welcome you this morning to anoint uh, David. Lord, um, may you use his life, his heart, to speak to your church, Lord. We give thanks to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joseph. Good morning. morning. I have good news for you today. Are you ready for good news? We need good news, don't we? Well, let me start by sharing a story about my life from a few years back. When I was a teenager, my parents, Arturo and Yola, decided to move to Argentina for a couple of years to complete their graduate studies. I'm the youngest in the family, so I went alongside with them. My my siblings stayed in Bolivia, but I went with with my parents. so we arrived in Buenos Aires, and uh, I, was, I was impressed. Buenos Aires is a, is a striking port city uh, with impressive architecture, uh, wide streets, beautiful gardens, very active nightlife, and lots of soccer fields, right? Um, as you probably heard, they, they won a pretty big game recently, right? Um, so, Two things made a very strong impression in my young self back then. Well, perhaps three. 
The third one is it's a bit complicated. So, so the first one is that Argentines are passionate and loved hyperbole. Uh, perhaps it's the Italian immigration, right, uh, that shaped part of their culture. Right? They received a lot of immigration from Italy uh, a century ago or so, and they, they, they love hyperbole. Um, that is, they exaggerate a lot of things. And the second one that really impressed me was they love barbecue. It's like a national religion, okay? In the office, when, uh, when I went as an adult, but even as a kid, uh, they, they love it so much, barbecuing, that during the week, uh, they talk about their barbecuing plans uh, for the weekend. And in the weekend, they, as they enjoy the meat, uh, they talk about other barbecues that they've had or that they plan to have. Right? So it's a bit of a, of a national religion there. And the third thing was complicated for me as a, as a young evangelical Bolivian boy arriving in Argentina. They love wine. They have endless fields of wine, and, and they love it. It's just part of the culture. And it actually is so much part of the culture that it has impacted their theology. You want to know how? Okay. I still remember this piece of uh, theological wisdom that I got in Argentina as a young, young boy. You know, my friend told me, you know that humanity is completely lost when you realize that we kill the one guy that could turn water into wine. <laughs> it's, it's been decades since I heard that joke, and it still makes me laugh. Um, yes, we're going to talk about wine this morning, but not just wine. Uh, we're going to talk about something uh, that we need to pay attention more, uh, and this is glory. And we're going to talk about the significance of this event uh, in the life of Jesus and what it means for us as disciples of Jesus. To do that, we're going to focus on uh, what Mary, Jesus' mother, does, and then we're going to focus on what Jesus himself does. Okay? So it's a bit of a, of, a, of a longer sermon than I usually like to preach, but there's just so much in this passage. I don't know how much you have thought about what Jesus does in this episode, but the more I think about it, the more I realize how amazing it is, especially when I read the explanation that John the evangelist offers about this passage in verse 11. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first, sign, first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this event is massively significant. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, Redeemer, friend, brother, may we learn to love you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. Show us what do you mean when you reveal your, yourself in glory? Amen.
Some of, some of you may have known uh, what I'm going to share for, uh, for a long time. You've, you've grown up in church and you've known this. But for the sake of those among us who don't have are, or are not as familiar with Scripture as uh, the rest of us, let me give a little bit of context for this passage, okay? In the Bible, we have four accounts. Four accounts of, lives, uh, of the life of Jesus, of his life and ministry. Uh, we call these accounts Gospels, right? We have the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. The Gospels share many of the stories, many of the same stories about Jesus. But each Gospel emphasizes a different thing about his story. Each one of them is a storyteller with a distinct style. For instance, the Gospel of Luke presents Jesus' story mostly as a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. But the Gospel of John presents Jesus' life and ministry mostly around the city of Jerusalem. So the, the, the travel is not as, part of, as big a part of the Gospel of John. And uh, another example is uh, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Matthew organizes Jesus' story, uh, emphasizing his long, long um, speeches, his discourses, more than his traveling. Okay? So they share many things, but they all emphasize different things. They have their own style. This morning, I want to share something really beautiful and creative about the Gospel of John, which we have read this morning. John uses what he calls signs to tell us about Jesus. These signs are moments when heaven and earth intersect with each other in the person and or in the works of Jesus. Okay? Signs are those moments, those places when heaven and earth intersect in the person of Jesus. So the entire book of John is an invitation for us to pay attention to these signs and through that to behold glory. Contemplating glory is a deep human need. This might shock you. We don't tend to think of glory in terms of need. But bear with me for a minute. See, because of the work that we do, that you and I, that we all of us together as a church, because of the work that we do as street ministries, we are exposed to all kinds of human needs in the city, right? We see our neighbors need for food, for housing, for friendship, for care. These are common human needs. No matter if you live in the most expensive part of, uh, you know, um, of West Vancouver, or if you have to sleep on the sidewalk of Granville Street, you need these things. These are human things, human needs. We have needs that are not material as well. We have needs such as love, friendship, and respect. It is important to address these needs. The gospel has something to say about these needs, both physical 
and spiritual. But even if you have them covered, you know, these physical and emotional uh, needs, even if you have them all covered, there is still the need, the profound human need for contemplating, for beholding glory. I'm going to say more about this later. But I want to share a story about uh, a story from another book of the Bible, this time from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus, that will make us help sense of this story of water becoming wine and what it has to do with glory. Okay? In the Old, in the Old Testament, there's no, arguably, there's no more important human, more important person than Moses. Okay? He was chosen by God to liberate his, uh, his people from slavery in Egypt. Okay? So, human need, a physical, real need, liberation from slavery. Exodus 33, 11 tells us that God spoke with Moses face to face, as neighbors speak to another. But, a few verses later, Exodus 33, 18 uh, we also read that when Moses asked God, uh, please let me see your glory, God said, I will make my goodness pass right in front of you. I will call out my name, God, right before you, but you may not see my face. No one can see me and live. And God said, look, here, here's a place right beside me, put, uh, put yourself on this rock. When my glory passes by, pay attention to this, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you'll see my back, but you won't see my face. Do you get how important glory is in the Bible? Moses had been entrusted with the task of liberating the people of Israel. He had a relationship with uh, God so close, so intimate, that no other human could compare. And yet, to this incredibly important man, Moses, God tells him, you're special, but sorry, you cannot contemplate my glory. He would die. If Moses had no chance, what could other more sinful humans, such as me, such as us, what could other uh, humans expect? Right? Glory. Glory is important. There are other passages in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, your heads O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Or Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. In the Old Testament, glory refers to the unbearable, to unbearably luminous, bright manifestation of God's person, His glorious revelation. It has to do with God's presence in history, but especially in his sanctuary, in his temple. It's impossible to think of God without thinking of his glory. Now, 
I know this is a bit of a long introduction, but it really kept me excited as I read this, this passage over the last few weeks. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three other Gospels, remember? They, the three of them combined use the word glory 18 times. Okay? 18. But John, the Gospel of John, uses the word glory 19 times. No other book in the Bible uses the, glory, the word glory more than the Gospel of John. There is another one that uses as many times, but we'll get into uh, that some other time. This word is clearly important for John, glory. And this morning, I want us to get that word at the center of our experience, at the center of our lives as followers of Christ. The Gospel of John presents the concept of glory and the revelation of God as the intervention of his power in our lives. Listen to these powerful passages in the Gospel of John. John, number, uh, John chapter 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or when Jesus says in chapter 8, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father whom you claimed as your God is the one who glorifies me. Or chapter 17. When Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Glory is an important concept for our discipleship. It's in the will of Jesus that we may behold the glory of God. Okay, we get it, right? In the Old Testament, glory is huge and it's as important as it gets in the, in the Gospel of John. So what can we learn about it in this passage, in today's passage? So let's go to the party. In Jesus' time, wedding feasts lasted about five days. The wedding itself in the town of, uh, uh, um, in the town of Cana would probably involve, would have involved the whole village. Okay, everybody was invited, and perhaps even several people from other villages, uh, which is why Mary, her son Jesus, and his disciples were all invited, were there in the wedding. This is a big, big event. We don't know what happened at that party. Perhaps they, there were more guests than they had expected, right? Um, people like Jesus and his disciples that were not really part of the village no, arrived nevertheless, so there's more, more thirsty mouths than, uh, than there's one. Uh, or perhaps the guests that were there uh, were particularly thirsty those days. <laughs> we don't know. Okay? Or maybe they liked they, the, the couple that was getting married, the family that, that was getting um, the families that were coming together, they just didn't have enough resources. Again, we don't, we don't know. What we do know is that there was no more wine. And this was a disaster 
This would bring shame to the new couple. Their wedding, that precious moment, would forever be remembered as the time when there wasn't enough wine. This was indeed a disaster. But Mary had her eyes open. She realizes what the need is, and she intercedes on behalf of this couple who are just starting their married life. When the wine was gone, she said to Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus replies, right? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother says, do whatever he says. This is only one of two occasions we meet Jesus' mother in the gospel. The other being at the foot of the cross in chapter 19. So it's worth paying attention to what she's doing here. She fully expected that he, that Jesus, would take appropriate action. Some commentaries say that Jesus had begun his miracles, you know, this sign, not at the request of his earthly mother, of his earthly parents, but according to the purpose of his heavenly father, right? So they um, dichotomize, they separate you know, the request of the mother versus the will of God. And they say, of course, Jesus obeys the will of God, not the request of the mother. Some commentaries, surprisingly, quite a few, say something like that. But as an adult, as an adult man, uh, all grown up, I think that they may be wrong with those commentaries. I think that they're not taking incarnation seriously and the relationships that come as incarnated selves, as relational selves. We celebrated Mother's Day recently, didn't we? In my life, and in the stories that you share with me when we talk, uh, one of the dynamics that I see is in our lives is that mothers whose children are now adults are always discerning how much advice they should give to their grown-up children, right? It's always a fine line. Um, my own mother, I'm just seeing if she's around. Um, well, my own mother is very wise about it. But I can tell you uh, that she doesn't hold back when she thinks that I should be giving more time to my kids. So that's one area where she just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hold back. She says, I have to spend more time with that. So um, I said, okay, mom. <laughs> All this to say that I don't see a conflict between the request from Mary and the purposes of God. That's incarnational, okay? In the same way that I don't see a conflict between praying your will be done while also praying, please heal this person. Please help them find a job. Please help them find a, a, an apartment, housing, right? Mary knows that it is not her voice, and this is a crucial part about Mary's intervention here. Mary knows that it is not her voice that they should be listening to, that the servants should be listening to. 
but Jesus' voice, Jesus' commandments. Mary's actions are important for how we understand discipleship, intercession, and even pastoral ministry. I was thinking about pastoral ministry uh, as we were, uh, as a team, celebrating Rebecca's ordination. Congratulations again. Um, so, you know, pastors are not therapists, right? We're not therapists. Although it is essential that we, um, that we learn skills about listening, listening well, right? Listening to others well. Pastors are not CEOs. Although it is very important to have leadership and administration skills. Of course, pastors are not merely passive people with no ideas and no initiatives. But pastoring is less about telling the church what to do and more about helping people do and be what Jesus is telling them to do and be. There is a difference. And it's crucial. And things don't go well when we forget that difference. So the example of Mary is important in our discipleship and in an understanding of our ministries. So our eyes fix on Jesus now and what he's doing. We know that the lack of wine at the party meant an unmitigated disaster, right? But we also know that there were six stone jars capable of holding between 30 and 30 gallons each, right? And there was enough water to fill those jars to the top. Okay, just to give you an idea, do you know how much water you use when you take a bath? It's about 30 gallons, okay? Shouldn't fill up more because it overflows anyhow, right? So it's about, it's about 30 gallons that you use for, for a bathtub uh, to take a bath. That's how much wine, water there is. Well, stick to the water first, right? So that, that's, how, that's a lot of water, okay? Six bathtubs of, of water. Stone jars are not mere water containers, okay? There's no small detail that they're made out of stone. These were used for purification rituals, okay? Purification was very important for the religious life in Jesus' time. But there is another need. In this episode, there is another need right in front of him. This new couple needs to avert social disaster. The party needs wine. That's the need. That this is the part that excites me. Do you know that one of the reasons we pastors ask you to serve is that in the context of our human needs, yes, even our need to party, it is in that context that Jesus manifests his glory. This is what excites me about this passage. Our human needs have everything to do with the manifestation of Jesus' glory. Again, against all my, all my evangelical expectations, Jesus turns water into wine. 
prioritizing the new couple's celebration over the purification rituals. This is an incredible amount of wine. Six bathtubs. You know what I thought when I realized how much wine Jesus had made? I thought, when I thought of this, right, six bathtubs of wine, so much, so much generosity, so much abundance. And I kept trying to, to think, what does it mean? And the only thought that came to me was those times in the year when we as a church uh, offer, uh, you know, we, we raise the offerings for, uh, at Easter and Thanksgiving, uh, that we collect, we collect those funds to support others in the world and in the city. And I want to say, good job, dear church. We're meant to do those things. We're meant to act generously like that. Six bathtubs of wine. So I want to encourage you in that. It is important that we do that. Keep it up. The first time that Jesus revealed his glory was when he became the life of the party. What a wonderful name. And Jesus, I am sure, enjoyed the wine that he made along with the other guests and his disciples. Yes. Yes. Jesus preached and healed. Jesus taught and proclaimed mostly about the kingdom of God. But Jesus knew how to sit with others at the table. Jesus knew how to sit with others at the table. It's not that Jesus didn't care about purification either. Because if you keep reading, the passage immediately after this in John, we have the story of Jesus purifying the temple. So it's obviously important for him. But let me say it again. Jesus knew how to sit with others at the table. So what are we called to do? Let's get our priorities right. First, discipleship. We need a disciple, a kind of discipleship. We need to live into a kind of discipleship that intercedes. Do we want our church to be relevant in the city? Of course, we need programs. We need a building, of course. But those mean nothing if we don't know how to intercede, if we don't have the heart to intercede for the city. If we join Jesus in his mission, we should learn that Jesus started by joining in the life of the town. And by joining in the life of the town ourselves, we'll learn to intercede. This is not about charity. This is about sharing a table. Behold, the glory of God manifested in Jesus, active in our lives. Let's intercede for our city. Intercede for the person who's sitting right next to you. Intercede for your colleagues, for your employees, for your employers, so that God will, co will cover their needs, so that they will behold His glory. Number two, 
This passage is about transformation. Let's not forget that. Jesus didn't speed up the process of fermentation. Right? There were no grapes involved, right? It's just water. There, um, so if Jesus can make wine out of water, he can make disciples out of us sinners. So let's bring our own failures and disappointments remembering that transformation only came when someone took Mary's words seriously. Do whatever he tells you. You have been transformed by God. You are God's wine to the city. You are the best wine. Bring joy to the city. You are God's wine until that day when we will fully behold Jesus' glory in the forever feast. Don't forget that. The picture of the kingdom of God as a feast is prominent throughout the New Testament, but also in the, in the Old Testament, in the passage of Isaiah that we read, remember? Let me close with that passage. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, of, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.